Hello and welcome to the Everyday Hair Colorist podcast, episode one, with myself, Jack Howard, and I'm being interviewed today by Sally Learmouth. Hey, Sally. Hi, Jack. Welcome. Thank you. So it's a bit weird, really, being interviewed for your own podcast, but I kind of thought that it would be a nice way to sort of open it up to what's going on in the future, so far away. That sounds exciting. So um, I think we all know that you're one of the busiest men in colour, so I wanted to ask you, first of all, why have you decided to do a podcast? Um, I think that the reason I decided to do a podcast was that there were so many great hairdressers out there on Instagram who I really like, who aren't necessarily huge names, but are doing things that are sort of fantastic. And I wanted to talk to them. And I felt like within the market, the uh, there was something missing from it and it's not, it's nice when I'm on Instagram and I'm chatting away with someone and we we build up these sort of relationships and we're talking about everyday hair colour uh, that I thought I'd like to share that to a to a bigger audience and make more people more accessible. Yeah, that sounds fab. So um, what sort of person would you imagine listening to your podcast? Like who are you aiming at? Well, I'm aiming at the everyday hair colourist and hairdresser. So I, I'm thinking people working on the high street, the main street, as the Americans call it, and, you know, in a village, wherever they are, it should be accessible like Instagram is. And I reckon that people might be listening if they're working out or if they've got a spare sort of 40, 50 minutes and they want to listen, hear, hear some of the people I've been interviewing. There's a great, it's a great list of people so far. It's not massive, but it's a, it's a nice. Are we allowed to know who's coming? Yeah, I, a few people I can share with you. So Luke Hirschen is on, on it, which is great. Zoe Irwin. Uh, there's a wonderful woman up north in Manchester called Nancy Stripe. Siobhan Jones has been on as well, and she's just set up her own business, which is quite fascinating. And then I camouflage and balayage. Her name's Amy out of Massachusetts, who just, I'm hair worship when I see her work. So it's cool. It's fun. So it's a really diverse mix, actually. And one of the things that makes me think of is um, you've been talking about fanning, hashtag fanning on yes. Instagram. Um, is this kind of an extension of that in that you're getting to have a really good conversation beyond kind of Instagram conversations or direct messaging or this is just your way of, of kind of conversing with those people and including others in the conversation? Absolutely, definitely. I think that, when, you know, when we go to events... They're busy and you, you brief catch-ups with people. How are you? Okay, this kind of thing. And maybe you'll pop out for dinner at the end of, end of a trade show with a couple of people. But you don't get to spend a lot of time with them. And uh, what I thought was it was definitely an extension of that. And I wanted other people to listen to these phenomenal stories. Really, I think they're really interesting. And they're all super commercial that have done something different and it's not about instagram numbers on there because that's that wasn't the point of the podcast the podcast was really about people that i found interesting or i fanned a fanboy of so yeah so take me back to where it all started for jack howard I started out at 16, Saturday boy, you know, well, younger than that, actually. But Saturday boy, working into apprenticeship, doing the lunch runs, always getting them wrong. Um, I think I spent more time when I was in London the first time around nightclubbing and dancing on bar tops than I actually did really focusing on my career. And it wasn't, Jack Howard really didn't 
materialise until I moved to the States and got this great opportunity to work in this very, very busy salon. And I realised my potential and the potential to make great money as a commercial hairdresser. Um, and I think that's when I decided that, yeah, this is, this is a lot of fun and I can live a great life. And then the aha moment, the real aha moment, was back in the 90s when I was forced by one of my bosses to go and learn balayage. And I was like, why? Why do this? I can do a sea of perfectly placed foils, three colours, you know, the typical sort of English go-to highlight. Um, and then I realised that I fell in love with this, this technique and it was fresh and it was modern and it became my passion. So by the time I left America in 2010, I'd gone from, you know, 100% foil to 75% balayage, 25% foil. And then moving back to the UK with this sort of idea in my head that it was going to be, you know, a great easy journey. Well, boy, <laughs> it couldn't be anything further than easy. So... You'd obviously been away for a while. You were hugely successful in the States and then you came back to London where effectively you were, in a way, starting again. Yes. How did it feel to come back to London and what did you feel about the colour scene here? So <clears throat> coming back to London was this exciting idea that I'd built up in my head with and talked to my husband into doing with me and it's going to be this great journey. But actually, the reality, I went to the recruiter who placed me in my, my job in the States. And she said, oh, yeah, we'll be able to, you know, my re your resume's great. We'll be able to get you a job. And the first thing I realized was that uh, the power of the receptionists who scrumpled up my CV and threw it in the trash, you know, virtually in front of my face. <laughs> and then I a startling reality check was that the fact that nobody really wanted to pay anything. And I'm just like, I don't think that's going to keep me in underwear, let alone shoes or sneakers. And I thought to myself, the, there's only one way this is going to happen. And that's going to be, I'm going to have to do this myself. And that's when my sort of Torian kicked in and I was like determined to do something. But it was, nobody was doing really Nobody was really talking about balayage. Nobody was really doing it. You didn't see anything on the streets that looked like that. You saw this work that really hadn't changed in at least 20 years. Um, and there was a reluctance within London to, to change what is like. If it ain't broke, let's not play with it. But when I started offering education up, balayage education up, it was the little small towns and little small salons that were looking for stuff that, women were asking for that were the ones who were my biggest advocates and I'm always thankful for that. So would you say that the revolution in commercial colour and particularly in balayage was driven to some extent by the consumer and by women seeing this hair colour and wanting it as opposed to salons knowing that this was a trend and offering it? Yes, absolutely I would. I... I think because I had been in the American market, which is super consumer-friendly and super led by what's on TV and what's in film, um, that's their red carpet hair. So I've been doing balayage since the mid-90s. Mid so for me, it was sort of like a normal. Um, but then to come back and see all of this happening and saying, oh, we don't do that. I mean, even a product company said to me, we don't do that. And I'm like, yeah, but I taught this for you 
across the whole of North America. Yes, but we don't do that in England. And there was this real, well, there wasn't an openness to change. And then you had young women that just didn't want to look like their moms. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, but if your mom's been having a set of classic foils for 30 years, do you really want to look like your mom? And I, I think that's like a really hard thing to break out of as well, because, you know, you go to the salon and really you can only have what's on the menu, can't you? Mm. And because everything was half head, full head, you know, tea bar. And it's this sort of strange terminology that I don't think women were sure they could get away from. So is that really different to how it is in the States? Well, my experiences are different. One, I was super busy and super successful within a salon and then to come in America and to come back here and to not be busy and to have a niche that you wanted to sort of to grow. But I think that I think American women are maybe a little bit more upfront and open and honest about what they want. And I've seen this here. I want this kind of thing. Whereas maybe English women are a little bit more or were a little bit more hesitant about saying, well, I don't want that, I want this. Um, but I think that also it's a very vulnerable position to be sat in a chair with somebody looming over you behind you saying, right, right love, same as last time. And yeah. there isn't the opportunity to say, no, I don't want that. I, I'm looking for something fresh. And we would, in future podcasts, talk about this. There's also that piece about, as a colorist, do you take the risk and take that magical moment and convert somebody to something new that then brings in a load of friends? Or do you stay the same and not worry about the fact that they're not going to get cross or upset and it's going to be fine? What, where do you go with that? And I think some people will take risks and some people don't want to. But the market has proven that you've got to grow and develop with the times. And there hadn't been anything fresh in London for years. So do you think that colourists were concerned with balayage that their clients didn't want what looked like regrowth and that they would feel that their hair hadn't been done properly because they could see roots, as it were? I think that the people that I spoke to at the time, um, because they weren't confident in it. Now, you imagine if you've been foiling for, you know, eight, 10, 15 years, like some, you know, or maybe even longer, and you know how to do it blindfolded. And then somebody comes in and they want a rooted look and there's no foil to protect it and it's painted on... And it quite terrifying, I would have thought. I mean, it certainly was for me. And people, the, the hairdressers at the time, felt like that if they didn't come back for 12 weeks, whereas they were coming back at six weeks, that they were losing money out. And that some of them weren't able to see that if you actually pushed those clients out into the 12 weekers you've got room to put somebody else in and so you're living with a bigger circle of clients so that if a couple of people move away your book's not interrupted so could we talk about how color has changed in the uk since 2010 the 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 sort of aha moment i think was bleach london doing dip dye i think that suddenly young women that looks cool they thought that looks cool and it was different and suddenly it was okay to grow your roots out and have a root. And then meanwhile, in New York and L.A., you have a, a conversation about lived-in lived in hair, sort of a, a balayage look, and you've got models and you've got Zara campaigns and HM campaigns. There's not a foil highlight to be seen in any of this. Yet 
within the salons, the salons were still trying to stay with the same practices. And a lot of them struggled with it, struggled with the idea of clients coming in less often, less revenue, and about how do you train your team up to speed to get them to be able to do these techniques. And a lot of it's been trial by fire for a lot of people in trying to make it happen. And there are a huge resentment to it, especially when I'm dashing out hashtags with foils are dead. <laughs> so do you think to some extent, though, maybe salons were doing what was more convenient for them as opposed to what's more convenient for the client? And actually, as a client, if you're getting a look that has more longevity, I mean, OK, you might not be going as often, but if you found a colorist who does something beautiful and you're really happy with it, clearly you're going to be loyal to them. You're going to tell more people and there's always more clients to come. So do you think salons have had to come round to the idea that by offering something that's more convenient to the client, they will get more clients? I think there was the resistance really to change and timings and all of those things. I think, you know, salons do, the majority of people want to be current and be fresh and be modern. I, I believe the struggle was probably more about how how to get those looks and to get them right, because we are a industry of pleasers. I mean, that's what we do. But I do believe that if you're offering what people are wanting or if you can stay ahead of the game slightly you're going to have the added advantage of it but there is place for all types of techniques in a salon I mean I've talked with people who only do freehand or people that only do foil techniques people that do everything and I think there's a place for all of it it's about making sure that you can do it well and that you're doing what people want not what you want so where do foils sit now? Foils are interesting because I think that uh, there's been some funny conversations about foils at this table. I think foils have their place. There's, there's no doubt for it. But just a sea of perfectly placed traditional, I don't think really, it's like cap highlights. I think that you seeing people weaving, chatouching, all sorts of different techniques all put into one. I think that is interesting and that's where foil has its place. But if you want to cause a little bit of controversy, of course, a hashtag with foils are dead is definitely going to work for you and you're going to get noticed for it, aren't you? I mean, we love a bit of controversy. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, so another thing that I think is really interesting since you came back to the UK is that we have run a full plethora of hair colour from, you know, at one point it was all little rainbow pony type colours. But do you think we've really seen quite a strong move away from that now? I think what we've seen in the last year, few years is really it's the decade of the colorist. The the idea to me that in the states you recognize the fact that colorists made the most money and in the UK it seemed like the colorists were all pushed to the back of the salon and it was all the cutters at the front and it was always a a cutting conversation. That's totally changed. Everyone knows that the you know colorists rule so to speak. Um and I also think that social media has opened the world up to people seeing lots of different things. So there is a place for everything. I think that, you know, the love, My Little Pony hair, all of that stuff is fun. It's visually really appealing to look at. You know, I get drawn into the ground when I see that stuff. Is it something that the majority of people want? Then the answer is no, because if it was, we'd see it everywhere. Is it a certain part of the market that people want? Absolutely. And I think... 
hairdressers and hair colorists want to know how to be able to do those things as well. Is it commercial? Yeah, I think it really is. I think that you can go in with rainbow hair and you can do you can do basically whatever you want. Are you ever tempted to do that? On myself? No, on clients. No, I don't like it. Well, not even on clients, but on models. Like, do you feel that there's an element of playing with colour there that you're kind of tempted by or does it just not appeal visually to you to do? Like you say, you like to look at it. Mm, I do like to look at it because I, I like to look and I think, oh, that, that looks really pretty together and it can... It can look harsh or it can look soft, but do I want to be doing that kind of work? No, personally, no. I know exactly, and I think that's one of the reasons I've been quite successful, is I know exactly what I want to do. I know what works for me. I know what I'm good at, and I know the, the, take, the market, what the market wants. So, no, the answer is no, it's not really me. And do you think as an industry, then, there's more respect now for commercial colourists, that people are seeing commercial colour as really viable talent as opposed to being able to create something that's many different hues and very bright. Yeah, you know, trade show hair versus salon hair, that kind of thing. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I wouldn't have thought there would have been a time when the hairdressing awards are offering commercial looks categories, uh, which I think is amazing because it opens the platform up more. But if you look towards something like Mary behind the chair, who just sort of said, These, this work, it's commercial, it's salon friendly, it's fantastic, and showcased it off. I mean, it's the number one award show now that people are chasing after. So yeah, I think that we definitely, there's much more recognition and respect. Um, and I think the, the gram has done that. And I think behind the chair's done that. Um, so do you think Instagram and social media generally is, has really helped with connecting technique with clients? Technique with clients, yes. Well, first of all, you've got your hashtags, haven't you, that everyone can search out. I think that now clients are much more informed, as we all are. We've all got an opinion on everything. Um, clients, are able, clients are able to look at people, bring those images in. Other hairdressers are able to look at and speak to hairdressers that they wouldn't have ever got to meet in life, which is, I think is fantastic, and be able to talk about stuff. You've got people who are successful in the salon who are willingly and happily providing details of how they've approached it, what they've done. Some are doing what they've, they've glazed in different sections. Some are doing price transparency. There are lots of different things out there. And it's certainly social media that's leveled the playing field. I think one of the things I love about the hairdressing industry is that there is so much sharing in terms of knowledge and, you know, everybody's really generous with their knowledge. Um, is that something that you're finding when you're chatting to people? Yes. I think hairdressers are, I mean, first of all, we have apprentices, we have assistants who we train. So we, we do give up our time and we do. I think everyone I've spoken to has wanted to up the game in the industry. I think the only difference in it now is because of things like Instagram, people are recognising that they can monetize their own private education. And I see nothing wrong with that at all. Can I ask, does it bother you when you see something that's hashtag balayage and it's not? Well, there's a few of us that do sort of privately send those messages across to people. So I've seen cap highlights tagged as balayage. I've seen foil highlights tagged as balayage and they've done a full head of foils and then done a root stretch. It's not to say that it's bad. It's just to say it's not 
Balliard. But I think that's where the message has been lost to the consumer uh, that uh, they come in and say, I want Balliard. And it's like, actually, maybe you'd be better off with this. But they're, they're insistent that it's Balliard. And so you sort of have to break that down a little bit for people. I mean, how much would you say Balliard has changed in terms of, like, I know you have the four gestures. So a few years ago, would you have split it into four gestures? Have they always been there? They've always been there. This is a great one. They've always been there because that's what I learned. I learned it as a one point, a two point and a three point. Um, those gestures have always been there. But when we used to teach it in the States, we just taught it as balayage. And when I was looking last year, really, at it, and it was like, well, how, how do I change this conversation slightly about it what I realized was I'd been in doing an event in Lisbon and I'd broken the categories down into instead of 1.2 point I'd called them other things and my sort of hair hero Nancy Braun was there and she she taught me balayage and she said to me I love what you've done with that and it was just really about taking it to the next level and so often I think we do things and we know things and we don't talk about them because we just take them for granted. And I think what breaking it down into four gestures has done is made it easier for people to go, ah, oh, okay, and a little bit easier for them to understand. I think it really helped the consumer understand as well because I know that we said together, we felt that the press coverage of Balayage had become a bit stale in a way. It was mm. like it was all stuck in the initial message, which is that it's freehand painting, but there was no acknowledgement that there was kind of more to it than that. And I think Four Gestures really helped to crystallise it for press, that it's not just this one look. Would you talk a bit about how you would see balayage as a technique as opposed to a trend? Well, I think that if we can break that down a number of times, really, because first of all, if you remember when I met you and we started working together, which was about 2011, I think. Yeah. And already beauty editors were saying, oh, we've written about that. That's a trend. And I'm like, it's not a trend, it's a technique. And they were like, oh, it's an old story. And they'd sort of seen it as sort of, you know, a panel of blue and it had moved on to the next season. And I think what we have done with it in the UK is a much stronger message about it's a technique. You can create any look you want with it, but it's about how you how you work it. So currently at the moment, it's sort of that lived in feel, which is just really starting to become a bit boring to me. So it's becoming boring to me. It's probably becoming boring to clients and things as well. So it's a case of just changing the gesture and going closer to the root or going to the root. So there's so much you can do with it. And it's not just about slapping it on. And I think that because of SEO search and all of that for all the digital, they kept the same message and just changed a few names in there all the time. And I, I thought to myself, no, I want to, I want to have a real conversation about this. Yeah, I thought that was fab. Um, I'd really love to know as well, what are the biggest preconceptions or the biggest issues that colourists have when they first start to do balayage? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think, I think the, the things people talk about really are the fear that they have. I mean, I always have honest conversations with people in, in the classrooms and they always talk about the fear. And then it's the harsh lines when it's supposed to be a seamless line. And they're... They're really easy to fix. Um, if you spend some time with people, you can really help them get going. But at the end of the day, I think that 
you know, a, a lightener is maybe only going to give you up to seven or up to nine levels of lift. So if somebody's coming in and they are, um, you know, a level two, you're going to have lots of warmth in there. You're going to be fighting that. It's open air. Um, maybe it's going to be a bit warmer. I think that one of the first things I say in my classes is that the rules of colour haven't changed because you're doing balayage. The rules of colour are exactly the same. So the things that would happen in a foil are going to happen on a balayage section. So can you learn it in a day? I think that if you're with me, I'm, obviously I'm going to say that, what you can learn is you can learn the gestures and I will give you, you know, I will work on you that day. But if you go back to your town or your home, wherever, and you put that doll head away and you don't look at it and you just go into the sound thing, oh, I'll wing it, then I think that you probably won't learn it all in a day. But if you go back into the salon and you start doing models and you start working on what you did with me on that day, then that day is really beneficial. And so, yes. So how much practice do you think it takes to get really good at balayage? Gosh, I think that, you know, you want to be getting into, you probably want to be getting into the sort of doing it on 70, 80 people, probably different hair types and textures going on. I think my first year was a struggle with it. I, you know, we were talking again in a future podcast about somebody else who's phenomenal, who struggled so much to begin with. And, but I think it, it is practice and you just got to do it. So tell me what ingredients make up a commercial colourist? Ingredients that make up a commercial colourist? Well, a successful one or a non-successful one? A successful one. I think, first of all, you need to be great with people. Um, but you need to be able to, this day and age, you really need to be able to manage expectation. And so for, for me, the thing I focus on a lot with people is that consult, that moment, that time when somebody comes to you and says that they are looking for a change, looking to see you, whatever. I think that the consult is probably the most, the make or break moment of success. And that I don't think people are afraid to say no in that, but they're also afraid to let people talk. So for me, first off, I really like to hear what a woman has to say, what she likes about her hair, what she doesn't like about her hair. And I'm not offended if she doesn't want a low light in that, in that piece of the conversation. Because, of course, I call a low light negative space now, so she doesn't even know what that is. Um, it allows her to just freely talk about her hopes and her dreams. And then there's time for me in that to, you know, do all the technical stuff, the allergy alert test, all of, you know, the stretch test, porosity, all of that. But there's also time for me to talk about where we can go in one commercial booking. Because... Myself and most commercial hair colorists aren't doing one client a day in a in a little booth or something. We're doing, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 or 28 if you're in America or something. So it's an opportunity to say, well, we can get you from A to F in one sitting and that's this price. And then we can get you from F to Z maybe on your next sitting or it could be two more sittings before we get you to your Nirvana. Because if you think about it, the hair that comes into you the first time has got loads of other people's work on it. And so there's all these other mitigating factors that are going on. And so by the time you actually want to get to where you go, you've probably got to have been doing them. I think Zoe said this about two or three, three or four times before the hair be color becomes really your hair color. Yeah. 
And so it's guidelines, isn't it? It's like, you know, if you've got box dye blonde, uh, box dye dark hair, you're not going to get to a lovely soft blonde in one go. That's the reality of it. But the expectation of a lot of people is that, that that's easily done because of things like social media. And so I think you just have to really be honest and truthful. And that's the first piece to, to success. So in terms of consultations, we know they're really important, but can you actually charge for them? Well, it's contentious, isn't it? And uh, to talk about it, we're the only industry in um, the world, I think, that we are offering these services free and not charging people for our time. So my story is, and I've been a big advocate of charging deposit, making people pay deposits, because I got really hacked off at, uh, you know, people not turning up for a, you know, a 15-minute consult. And, you know, you get three of those in a day. That could have been a, a big bill for a full head of balayage with me. Uh, or I could be sat at home on my sofa not being paid. But, you know, I'm self-employed. And so for people not turning up, it just drive me mad. And then if they're not turning up for an appointment, for an actual booking, that drove me even crazier. So what I did and what I talk about all the way through this series is what you do with deposits. And for me, it was, I charge £50. My, my area can cope with that. But that £50 for that half hour with me is your half hour as a, a consumer to talk to me about everything that you want and we can usually get it done within half an hour. And I can also make my mind up about, you know, whether this is right for you, the right fit, that, those kind of things. But that is deductible from your final bill. So okay. it's not that I'm taking it just for that time. Some people even do that. I don't. I just sort of say, well, I'll deduct that. Because I've found that if, even if you charge one pence for something, people will turn up for that one penny because it's theirs. But if it's free, there's too much of an opportunity to say, oh, you know, I'm hungover, I want to go out with my boyfriend. Or my they don't girlfriend. value it. There's no value to it. No value at all. And then at the, fine, at the consult, as I take the lady to the reception desk, and I've done the, um, the allergy alert test and everything, it's like, would you like to book? There is a booking fee of a, a, it's £100. So for me, that's £150 that's taken off their final bill when they come in. Everyone turns up. But I do say to people, if you don't cancel within 24 hours, you will, be ch- you will lose that 150 For me, the next step is really about charging a fee for every single booking. Yeah. Because, you know, on Saturday, somebody didn't turn up, somebody cancelled, and they were regular people. And it's like, oh, sorry. But, you know, sorry doesn't pay the bills, does it? No, that's very frustrating, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I think it's a hard one. Do you think there needs to be more of a kind of industry standard in that this is what customers should expect because this is what all salons will do rather than a couple of salons enforcing that as a policy and customers thinking, well, I'll just go somewhere else then? So the fear is that a customer's going to say that they'll go somewhere else. The reality is that I think that that's not the truth. You will lose people, but you won't lose everyone. Um, but you'll be paid. Yeah. And th- you won't lose the ones who value you as a colourist either. The no. Ones who know that your or a stylist, you know, or, you know, an extensionist or anything. There is a... All great movements don't start massively. They start small. But there is this... You can hear the hooves marching of the horses and um everywhere you go it's into talking to people yes i'm doing that now yes i've started doing that and now people are saying i'm thinking of charging for deposits for all appointments i saw somebody advertise on insta stories which i love by the way stories that they were going to they'd open december but they were charging a booking fee for every single december client 
because, you know, who wants to lose that money? Yeah, it's a great idea, isn't it? Yeah. And do you find that with allergy alert tests as well, that there needs to be some continuity across the industry with that, so that if one salon is saying, we can't colour your hair, you've just walked in off the street, you need a test, and they go somewhere else and they'll colour it the same day, really, if that was an industry standard and the consumer expected to have a skin test, there would be more consistency there? I think that, I think that you know... For me, it's it's a it's a given. You've got to have it done, and that's why I don't even mention it in the consultation because that gets that all out of the way. If somebody hasn't been for I think it's six months or a year, they have to come back in for a consult anyway. Um, it's it should be a standard, I believe. Um, sometimes people go for the short term goals of getting it there and then the money rather than the long term goal, which is actually looking after people as well. Because if you look at what can happen when a there is an allergic reaction it's really pretty damn scary and people can die they certainly end up in hospital but I think also it's a beauty industry conversation that isn't really had in the consumer press and it's really annoying you might see it in the sun for the shock value but there you know I even had a doctor the other day say to me well why do I have to wait 48 hours and I'm like you're a dermatologist (laughs) hello so you know I think there needs to be more awareness but I find one of the ways of making it easier is to not mention it, that the client has to come in for an allergy alert test. In fact, the reception team aren't even allowed to say allergy alert test. They just say consultation. Oh, OK. And then it's done. So I think even though social media has, in a way, been responsible for people having unrealistic expectations, do you think social media is now also picking that back apart because colorists are having more of a voice about what is doable and what isn't. I think that the clever colorists out there are the ones who are communicating well, are talking about the whole the whole lot. They're talking about what's possible, what's not possible. I think people have realized that you can get yourself into such a mess if you just say yes, I can do that and then you're going and your top lip sweating and you're panicking and it's all going to go terribly wrong. Whereas some real honesty with people about what's achievable and what isn't is the way forward. So is part of what's achievable, what's affordable? No. What is achievable is what's achievable. Okay. And what's affordable is dependent upon how much somebody's willing to pay. Exactly. So if a client wants a whole world of work done, but they don't understand what that is... Do you think that comes down to the sum colour that a client possibly can't afford or hasn't budgeted for because it's such a long journey and they don't appreciate what that journey is? I think that lots of people don't always appreciate what the journey is and they're like, well, why can't you do it now? But there's, you know, hair's hair, it's only going to do so much. But I also think that if you don't sit down and do that consult and break it all down for them, then how are they supposed to know? And if they can't afford it, then... For me, I always think about, I recommend somebody else in the salon at a lower price point. I'm not really bothered. I just know that I'm not going to do it for less than what my my price is. Yeah. And how can colourists decide what their pricing should be? I think it depends. Because if you're you're employed, your salon has set the prices. And too often it seems to be the case in the UK where salons haven't priced themselves properly. Because that chair that you're working in has and all the other chairs in the salon they have to generate so much money per day to pay for all the costs and if you haven't done a proper breakdown of that then that's a whole another world um and and i think a lot of salons don't charge enough 
but we're, we're fearful. We're fearful of people saying, well, I'll go somewhere else. But I think if your work is good, this is what I believe, if your work is good, some people will come, some people will say it's too expensive, and other people will go. But the ones that come will stay. How much these days, because I wanted to talk to you more about social media, um, how much these days is being able to market yourself part of being a good commercial colourist? Well, I kind of worry about people that don't do the gram um, because I think that if you can't market yourself, uh, nobody else is really going to do it for you. I think that it's a great tool and I think that to be successful within your area, so it doesn't, you don't need to have you know, 300 million thousand followers. You don't need to have 30,000 followers. You could have 400 people in your area who are all willing to pay your prices. And if you interact with them, that's fantastic. So I think that we do get caught up with numbers, but not everybody needs to be Insta-famous. You've been on Instagram for a long time now and you are really making it work. So what would you say makes a good Instagram feed? I don't know what makes a good one because I think... I can only really speak about my own. Um, I know that I'd been on it for ages, and like all these things, I was on Twitter for ages. That's how I met you, actually. It is how yeah. I met with Twitter. Yeah, until I had to come off it because I was too um, <laughs> politically active, which didn't fit the brand. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. You're definitely more of a visual person. <laughs> yeah, definitely more of a visual person, yes. Um, I think that Instagram, for me, I think it has to really... Be honest. And I, I think that I, when I looked at mine, I don't know, what was it, a year and a half ago, two years ago, I looked at it. There was sort of, it was all over the place. I mean, it actually, it was really quite shoddy. And, you know, I had some extensions on there. I had, you know, a glass of whiskey on there. I had a glass of champagne on there. I mean, you know, food shots. There was, you know, occasional press piece that I'd put up on there and stuff. And, of course, you can do all that in stories now. Um, so when I looked at it and then I looked at other people's accounts and thought, this doesn't really speak of me. And that's when I had a really long thought about it. And I've been really fortunate to have met some, some really great Instagrammers and talked to them about what they were doing. And, and so I think that my account really speaks. It's, what do you do? I, I love balayage. I'm a balayage educator. That's what my account says now everything is about that and I talk about it I give free tips on there and the the video stuff just does really really well the thing that I haven't got my head around and I think part of it is because I don't style other people style and cut for where I work out of at Paul Edmonds so I don't have a look to my girls that's interesting yeah so if you look at other people's they they have a signature look and I don't have that. I have, a, I have balayage applications, I have balayage, but I, my hair never has the same feel to all of it. And I, that's probably my weak, weakest link on there. Um, and that's why I started taking all of, that at, all of those kind of images out and focusing more on application and what it can do and, to, and really talking about negative space and the gestures. And, and recently I've been adding some video content in with images of the finished look, so there's a bit more of a journey on there. They're doing quite well. Have you ever <clears throat> done cutting or styling? Yes, I trained to do everything. Did you really? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, I don't think... Um, I mean, I can do a great asymmetric undercut um, bob. 
which doesn't sound like your style doesn't at sound all. like me at all no <laughs> but you know if I was to go to get my uh, MVQ I could do that so no I had to do that actually because I wanted to get my assessors thing so I had to show that I could do that which was quite funny um no I don't enjoy it I don't enjoy cutting I don't I certainly don't enjoy blow drying um, I really want to throw the brush on the floor in a fit of temper because the hair won't dry quick enough for me. And, you know, I even had a blow-dry lesson with Zoe Irwin and it was just, you know, I mean, not bad, she said, but she said practice and, of course, I didn't practice. So I've forgotten all well, the tips. Well, that's funny that you say that a blow-dry is frustrating because it's not quick enough, whereas actually colour work is surely one of the longest processes you can do in hair. Yeah, but I think if you're enjoying it, you have the willingness, don't you, and the joy. Fair. And I think that if you find it laborious and... That then it's like no, I mean I couldn't bear to be doing all those blow dries and then those curling irons and all that product and oh no, not for me. So if you had a look, as it were, what do you think it would be? What do you, <laughs> what do you love in terms of styling? Of styling, I don't like overstyled. I like quite airy and fresh, and that's probably why I love Zoe's work. Um, I like a little bit of polish to it, but I like hair that looks barely done in fact I was just looking at some stuff I'm doing this mood board and I was looking at um, Mary Phillips from the Mama and the Poppers um, back in the 60s and she just had I mean the reason I was looking at that was because this thing had taken this image had taken me back to the 60s uh, 1967 actually and she had this hair and I was like oh I love that that's so simple and it wasn't sort of beehives or anything it's quite it's quite LA it's quite late 60s it's just sort of undone and just pretty nice so are you still learning anything yes I'm totally still learning I'm learning Instagram for sure I think we all are um I'm always looking at my application and seeing how I can change it and sometimes I get frustrated by it um, I've taken myself on some courses, which has been really fun to be the other side of the classroom and see what's going on. I spend way too long zooming in on the feed of other people to see how they've done that. And I am definitely looking at some foiling stuff at the moment and playing around with that, which has been really interesting to me. What excites you now then about hair colour? What excites me besides mm. the paycheck? <laughs> What excites me? I think what the, the nicest thing is that I still have a joy for what I do, um, which considering it's been 37 years this year, I've been on the floor full time. Um, that makes me very old, doesn't it? 37 years. I've got assistants whose mothers aren't that old. Um, yeah, I, the joy. I love it still. And I think I've always said that there's nothing nicer than a person looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I love it and smiling. Um, Yes. And I love teaching still. My career is no longer just based in the salon. So I get to travel. I do things like podcasts because I wanted to. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate. And so there's lots of joy in it. I always think about the education side for you being as big, actually, as the clientele. I don't know if that is how it works out, but I do think of you as an educator and someone who just loves talking to other hairdressers about colour. Well, I do love talking to other hairdressers about colour, and I don't mind talking about styling either. I just don't want to do it. (laughs) Um, I think there's sort of... It's maybe 50-50. I think to be an authentic educator in this day and age... You definitely need to be working behind the chair and not just, you know, occasionally. I mean, I I feel like for me, if I'm going to 
if I'm going to go out and say in the salon, I need to be in it and to feel it. And I think that's the bit that pushes me. Um, so they both have their value, but I don't want to be on the salon floor seven days a week or six days a week doing, you know, 12, 14 clients a day. <clears throat> I'd rather do four days and do, you know, sort of eight, eight clients a day. That's the max for me. I go home and I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm always exhausted. I don't know why. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the reality of modern life. Yeah, it eh? is, yeah. 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 Always switched on. Yes. I mean, that's yeah. part of it, isn't it? Yeah, very much. Do you ever feel that you're maybe too involved with Instagram or do you ever want to pull back from it? Or do you just feel like it's a, like a genuine source of joy and you always enjoy it? <laughs> It's definitely not a source of joy all the time. Is it work now? Is Instagram work? Instagram is definitely work. And there are moments when I really enjoy it, but I I try not to look at a post straight away after I've posted it. I don't want to see how well it's done, but there is this natural feeling to grab the phone and start staring at it. And I don't want to judge myself on the numbers that come up because algorithms change all the time. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Um, but I, I enjoy looking at, what others are doing on there. And it's not as in, uh, I want to do that or that's not good or, you know, anything about comparing myself in it. It's just seeing people do really interesting things and be successful on it. But it's definitely a job. Definitely. Well, thank you, Jack. It's been really fun to speak to you and I cannot wait to hear the podcast. I think they're going to be fantastic. Well, thanks, Sally. I know I sort of threw you in it by saying, you know, come and interview me, but I just thought it'd be a nice opener for everyone who doesn't know me to get a little feel for it. But what I can tell you is there are some great guests, some really honest conversations about commercial hair colour, commercial hairdressing. Thank you. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did making it for you. Don't forget to subscribe on your channel that you download your podcast from. iTunes is my favorite, but I know there are others out there. And also, if you want to follow me on stories on Instagram, it's Jack Howard Color, C-O-L-O-R, the American way, not the English way. And on Facebook, it's Jack Howard Color, C-O-L-O-R. And my website is www.jackhowardcolor.com. Yeah.